Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. That music usually means the last radio hour of the week has begun, but we're beginning it early this week because next hour, Senator David Perdue is joining us at the bottom of the hour. But for the next four segments in the next hour, Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. He's president of Hillsdale College. And once a week, we discuss something important, something from history, something that matters, uh, not just this week or next week, but next year or many years from now. Dr. Arn and I were together this week earlier at the Kirby Center, Hillsdale's uh, Lighthouse of Sweet Reason, in the middle of D.C. to talk about the Charter School Initiative, the Barney Charter School Initiative. And it was a wild success. 14,000 people listen into that. I think, Dr. Arn, that was a record. I think that was a record. Yeah, it, uh, I think it was a 40% record. Oh, my goodness. Well, we like that. Yeah. That means yeah, next year go. we got to get to 20,000. Uh, Larry, right, we're going to talk about transitions today because there's a lot of bad information about what the Constitution requires and doesn't. But before we do, you and I both lost a friend this week, the wonderful, the remarkable, the great Bruce Hershenson. I wonder if you want to tell people a little bit about Bruce. Yeah, well, if you didn't know him, uh, he was famous in California and uh, for one period nationally. He was in national politics, he worked in the Nixon administration where he did something great that we should mention. Uh, and then he came back to California, and among other things, he became a TV commentator. And you have to think your man, mind back to a time when the television you, news used to try to be fair. Yes. And so it would have Bruce Hersenson and also uh, former Senator Tunney uh, debate or give alternating commentaries. And uh, they would give the commentaries, and then there would be, like, their signature would come up on the screen to the left of them. And Hersherson was brilliant, and he got a, a, his commentaries. Are, you can find them on YouTube, and they're worth watching. Uh, and then he ran for the Senate in, what, 92? Yes. And, uh, and he lost narrowly. To Barbara Boxer. Uh, yeah, and he was, you know, he was, uh, in doing that, he was a gentleman. Uh, he wouldn't uh, say anything bad about her. He edited out everything from every ad or speech that had any personal reference of a negative kind to her. And uh, so he was an old-fashioned gentleman, too. And then the last thing is he won two Academy Awards for films he directed when he was at the United States Information Agency, which is defunct now. It's called something else. Uh, it's called the Board of Broadcasting. But its mission was to tell America's story abroad. And so in the Nixon administration, he made a bunch of films. And uh, they were, it was illegal back then to show them in America. But their reputation grew. And so members of the Academy of, 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 uh, movie, of, of Motion Pictures uh, arranged to have, the, uh, have showings just for them in America of the films. And two of them won. And... My favorite one is called Five Days in June. It's from 1962. Uh, five cities in June. And the cities are Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where George Washington, uh, Wallace stood in the door to try to prevent black kids from entering the University of Alabama. Uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Havana. Uh, uh, what now? Uh, a city in Vietnam where there was an attack that helped provoke American involvement in that country. Uh, get the fourth. Well, the fifth, I'll skip to the fifth. Oh, there was a Russian missile launch. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fifth was Kennedy gave his famous speech in Berlin. 
And if you go and watch anything by Bruce Hershenson, find that thing. It's on YouTube, Five Cities in June, Bruce Hershenson. And then if you don't have time to watch it all, but I urge you to do it, uh, watch the last 15 minutes because that's the one about Berlin. And it is just simply a work of art. An Academy Award that was deserved. Oh, yeah, huge. And the last shot, most of the shots are of Kennedy, given the great speech he gave there where he said in German at the end, I, too, am a Berliner. Uh, But he used the wall where the the speech was given near the wall as the difference between communism and freedom. And then the last shot in the movie is he pans the camera across and there's a, a window. It's not really a window. It's just a hole in a concrete wall. And there's this face stuck in it looking across the wall toward the speech and it's imprisoned. So it's a, it's a very powerful thing. My uh, my only recollection I want to share with people about Bruce Hershenson, other than anything I know about the radio, I learned from listening to Bruce because his radio show was an instruction for anyone who works in this medium, is that the first political debate I ever moderated, and I have moderated a lot, was between Bruce, Sonny Bono, and Tom Campbell, all of whom are my friends, at KFI Studios in Los Angeles in the primary of 1992, and Sonny Bono brought a chicken. And the chicken, I don't even remember who he was accusing of being a chicken, but Sonny was a colorful character, and Tom was a brilliant character. But Bruce was one of the smartest men who ever ran for office and was brought down in that campaign by a dirty trick uh, at the very end, uh, which was the first exposure I ever had to how clipping someone in the last 24 hours can lead to a devastating loss of momentum in the evangelical area. Uh, they had accused Bruce of going to a strip club. He had actually gone to a uh, a modestly uh, titillating club with his girlfriend and Bill Press. And it became the scandal that uh, brought him down. And Ken Kuchigan, his dear friend with whom he was like a brother, told me Bruce always blamed himself and not the people who brought him down for a lapse of judgment that allowed him to go to the seventh veil. And I thought to myself how the country would have been different if um, if Bruce Hershenson had won the Senate and not Barbara Boxer in 1992. Yeah, he was an effective communicator. And so a lot of things that have gone wrong since then, you know, China, one of them. Yes. Uh, he was onto all that. And, Did you not uh, go to Hong Kong with Bruce? In the uh, right before the handover, uh, I, I went twice and once with Bruce, and the time with Bruce was right before the handover. I, I recall and, that. Uh, I recall hearing yeah. about that. So, yeah. so let's talk oh, about no, handovers. Was... Uh, let's talk about the transitions that we are about to go through from President Trump to President-elect Biden. And there's a lot of folklore, and boy, there's a lot of wrong stuff out there about whether or not. It's terrible for President Trump to go or not go to invite Biden or not call Biden. Trump, Biden, Biden, Trump. In fact, there's very little in the Constitution about this, Dr. Arndt. So there is no breaking of norm or law, whatever happens. But we do have some precedents. I'm curious what you think about Washington and Adams, the first transition. Uh, well, first of all, uh, there, there, there are several you want to talk about today, and two of them are closely linked. That's the one in 1800 and the one in 1860, uh, 1861. Uh, the one, uh, so... Uh, 
George Washington was elected president the year after the Constitution was ratified, and of course nobody could run against him. So they induced him to run a second time, and then the job comes open, and he's not going to run again. So it immediately turned into a food fight. And, uh, and you know, p- people who were all members of Washington's cabinet, uh, especially uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who were very close friends in their early life and through the founding of the republic, and very close friends in their later life. But as Adams said in later life, when he restored his friendship with Jefferson, uh, somebody said at Brainerd, when where, where the town where he lived outside Quincy, Massachusetts, said, uh, uh, so good that the, the enmity between you and Jefferson has ended. And uh, Adams replied, Mr. Jefferson never hated me. It's just that he wanted to be president, and I was in the way. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that was the Federalist Party, right? The party that made the revolution, the party that had established our republic, right? And it got beat in 1800. And now go forward to 1861, which we'll talk about more. Uh, in his first, uh, well, in his mission message to Congress of July 1861, after he's inaugurated president, and secession has happened, which was underway during his transition. He says that the election of 1800, the lesson of it was that for the first time in history, bullets had repla- sorry, ballots had replaced bullets as the method of transfer of power. And, th- and that means that in Lincoln's opinion, and in the opinion of the people in 1800, the first time a free people ever elected a new executive, and the old executive gave up and gave way to the new one, that happened here in America in 1800. And, never and I, I love to history. say Washington set twice the example of walking away from power, and the first time uh, astonished the world and George III, and the second time set a precedent that continues to be the aim for which every civilized society grasps. Yeah. Well, this is like, uh, you know, what's going on today? And I'm not in this conversation prejudging these claims that the election has been stolen. If that's proved, then there could even still at this late date be a change. But uh, and and if if it has been stolen, that's a grievous thing that strikes at the heart of the American Constitution. Uh, but, but the bitterness of this is not like, you know, 1800 was in a way very bitter, but in the end, they all agreed about the basic stuff. The Jeffersonians, I mean, you know, uh, the constitution, the people who were most responsible for getting the convention called were Hamilton and Madison and, and Hamilton, you know, ended up being a Fred, a federalist after the split began, and Madison went with Jefferson, right? On the other hand, they had been the co- closest collaborators in producing the Constitution. And so they, they – the, and it's an interesting thing, if you go back and read it, that they, they – they, in politics, they pretended or they accused one another of fundamental departures from the principles and institutions of America. Uh, uh, the Federalists were accused of being monarchists. And and the uh, uh, Jeffersonians were accused of being uh, 
levelers and uh, and uh, just uh, radical democratic allegiance, and that means no constitutional procedures, just the mob. And so they, and you know, those were, and it's interesting in politics, both of those claims uh, offended the American people. That is to say, they didn't like either one of those things. So they believed in the constitutional republic. And so one of the reasons those elections didn't prove to be as divisive as the most divisive one of all, the 1860 election, is because in the end, there was a fundamental agreement about how we should be governed and who should be in charge of the government. And, and that agreement had, when we come back from break, we're going to talk about how that agreement frayed by 1861. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be back back with Dr. Larry Arm. We're talking transitions on this Hilltail Dialogue. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. In 1800, John Adams gave way to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, but not with the deep bitterness that marked 1860. Uh, tell us about the election of 1860, Dr. Arndt, and how that transition differed from every transition prior to it. Well, the election of 1860 was a god-awful mess. And, uh, you know, the uh, you, you brought up some others, and I'll just mention them. Uh, when uh, Andy Jackson ran twice against uh, John Quincy Adams and won the popular vote the first time, and the electoral vote the first time, he just didn't win a majority, and he lost in the House of Representatives. Those were bitter elections. But as I say, after it was over, not fundamental. Uh, the 1860 election was fundamental because it immediately after the election, there was secession. Uh, the way the election went is that uh, basically Lincoln's votes were not counted in the eventually seceding states. And so he didn't he didn't get a majority of the popular vote, and he got a he, he did get a majority of the electoral vote uh, because he won the West. He won the North and the East and the West, and the South, much of most of which eventually seceded, uh, went for. Uh, in, in, here's an interesting thing. So for tw- so I have to go to the history of slavery very quickly. In 1787, the Northwest Ordinance was passed, and it it allowed for the Union to expand by a system of free states and equal citizens. And there's a provision in it that forbids slavery from being in the Northwest Territory, where Michigan and Ohio are, uh, to to name the two most noteworthy states in that region. There's only one, Uh, but yes, they're both there. Yeah, they're both there. And, uh, uh, And... so, and that comes from Virginia, and they gave the land, and Thomas Jefferson was the leader of that. In other words, in 1787, there was an agreement to ban slavery from expansion in America. In land that had been slave-friendly because it was Virginia land. That's what the point you're making. The Northwest Territory, the capital of which is Warren, Ohio, uh, was seceded, was given by Virginia to the new United States as a free soil country, free soil territory. Yeah. And see, all the now it's, it's you know, the American history is wonderful and also messy. But uh, Virginia claimed all of the land to the west of there, too, as did all of the original 13. They, they claimed all of the land to their west. They just didn't know how big that was because <laughs> nobody's been out there to see. <laughs> so they didn't really know what they were claiming. And, and uh, you know, the, by the way, the, the land was sold 
into private hands rapidly to pay off the Revolutionary War debt. So it was a magnificent act by Virginia, and Virginia had never really run that area. They and George Washington surveyed parts of it, but uh, it was, you know, it was the frontier, right? And we were a bit rustic back then. So it, it comes over, and, and the, the point to absorb from this is there was a national consensus reached in the Northwest Ordinance, one of the organic laws of the Union, that slavery would not grow. And then you have to zoom ahead exactly 33 years, one human generation to 1820, the year of the Missouri Compromise, because in, in that compromise, it was evidenced that now there's a huge concern to keep the ratio between the slave and the free states the same, because there was not an agreement anymore about whether slavery should grow. And that, gives, that, that has to do with the rising of the positive good school of slavery, which is affected by German historicism and which is, oddly enough, a predecessor of modern progressivism. And John Calhoun was its principal champion. I, I always say the man who did the most damage in America was John Calhoun, because Lincoln argued slavery had been set upon a course of extinction by the framers. And I think John Calhoun saved it from extinction so that Lincoln had to kill it. Well, these ideas, see, we're still struggling with these ideas, right, because they're very different from the idea of the American Revolution. And that stark change, I, I like it that it's 33 years between those two things. Uh, in one generation, a new idea had grown up. And then that means that the history of the country from 1820 to 1860 is much troubled with the question of slavery. And there had been these huge efforts led, first of all, by Henry Clay, who, who put a uh, senator from Kentucky, who put together the first, who put together the Missouri Compromise. And it basically uh, states in, in this certain territory would be admitted in a ratio that would preserve the status quo. And, and, uh, and then, you know, it, it and the history of America, by the way, is much driven by land because this is the first place in the world where ordinary people could get some land. And they wanted to do that, right? That's what the, the great Homestead Act signed by Lincoln in 1862 does. And when we come back at the top of the hour, we're going to talk about this transition between 1820 and 1861 and fundamental things being afoot. Because hey, now fundamental things are afoot in the country again, as Dr. Arn likes to say. We'll continue that conversation when we return to hour number three and the second half of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. Plus, Senator David Perdue, don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Why am I playing that song in the Hillsdale Dialogue Hour? All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.com. Hillsdale.edu. It's because it's about the drawing of the Mason-Dixon line. It's a great ballad. It's one of the few ballads of the modern era with James Taylor. I can't remember who else is in it. Um, who sings that? Dwayne might tell me. Mark Knopfler, that's it. And have you ever heard that, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale no, College? I didn't know it. Oh, it's a beautiful song. I'll have Dwayne send it to you. It's one of the great ballads of modern times about the drawing of the Mason-Dixon line. And that Mason-Dixon line figures so prominently in all of American history because it became the battle line of slavery in a lot, in large extent. That's right. And, uh, you know, I, I was telling this history, the last great senator to come forward to try to compromise slavery by, by not making a decision about it was Stephen Douglas. And he had the famous debates with Lincoln. 
And his plan was, we just quarrel all over these territories and which state gets to be slave and which state gets to be free. And, you know, the the reason, by the way, the reason the federal government has power is that uh, in the beginning, when a territory is formed, the people live in it under federal law. And so because they don't have a mechanism for making their own yet, the, the Northwest Ordinance and, uh, provides the mechanism for them to do that. But slavery needs a lot of laws because although the claim is put forward that the slaves really love their servitude, they have this thing that keep trying to get away. And so, and so you need law enforcement in general, right? And that means if the federal government won't protect the slaves in the territories, they can't take them there. And that makes it very powerful. And Lincoln's plan, uh, which was, by the way, partly devolved at Hillsdale College, was that we will just not permit slavery in any of the new territories. And then they will all come in as free states. And Douglas's alternative plan was let each state vote and decide for itself. Get the whole thing out of the federal government. And of course, that was very attractive, although it immediately proved unworkable because Kansas was being settled at this time. Kansas-Nebraska Act is the great uh, a bill in this, uh, introduced by Douglas uh, was the place where this was fought out politically and in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And here's what happened. Uh, there's not really any law in Kansas, but people start rushing there. And they start rushing there carrying weapons. And and adherents of the Confederacy uh, seize a town, move the state capital to that town, hold a convention, and present a constitution to the Congress of the United States that guarantees slavery. And that it's called the Lecompton Constitution. And that uh, act stunk to high heaven. And even Stephen Douglas said we can't ratify this. And what that showed was uh, the, the popular sovereignty, that is to say, let each state decide for itself, was no prescription for harmony at all. And that's one of the reasons that Lincoln won the Lincoln-Douglas debates, as he did, and got himself elected president. And, um, and then the collision, but, the unavoidable collision. Because there are some things that cannot be reconciled. You cannot reconcile slavery with freedom. You can postpone the choice. You cannot reconcile it. And Lincoln okay. uh, Lincoln eventually had to acknowledge that with the Emancipation Proclamation, though he did not begin the war against the South, and the South seceded on a false premise. But th- that was when you say fundamental things are afoot. That took 30 years to come to a head, 40 years to come yeah. to a head. 40 years, yeah. For, you know, and if you figure Reconstruction came later, and, you know, we still argue about this stuff, right? Uh, but I, I, I'm going to argue that uh, this is a new day from 1860, although I like it. And it's a like it, in my opinion, because these these principles of historicism, of societal and personal evolution, which appeared in America first in the Confederacy, pro-slavery, now lives in America, mostly on the left, although there's right-wing parts of it too. And, and so today we're up against something where, you know, the Constitution itself is seen as an impediment, and we're going to reform it so we can get our way for good and all. 
And I th- at the bottom of that conversation, I, I wonder if you will agree with me, and I talked about this with when I was at the Kirby Center with you this week, is a question about whether you would prefer freedom over security, the false promise of security in my view. But it does seem to me that that is the issue on the table. Do people want to be free and allow others to be free? Not a libertarian kind of freedom, but a federalist kind of freedom, a Lincoln well, kind of freedom. Responsible for yourself. Right. That's yes. That's and that's 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 what it is to live. I used to argue with uh, Bruce, the stubborn and wonderful Bruce Hersonson. I used to argue with him about this because he would say it's the choice between uh, freedom and security. And I would say there is no such choice. Are the people of the Soviet Union secure? Because if they get a knock on the door in the middle of the night, somebody can be taken away and you can never find out what happened to them. Is that security? Well, I, w- I would argue, uh, did he reply, it's the, pr- it's the choice between freedom and the false promise of security. Well, he wouldn't even, he was so, he, you're a very stubborn man, but he was worse than both of us. He would <laughs> never even admit that. <laughs> oh, he wouldn't? Well, of course, he's Bruce Hershens, and he didn't have to, right? He would just uh, talk, and you would be seduced by his voice. That was, uh, well, he had the most mellifluous voice. So that's where we are now. And there's a transition in office coming up that isn't nearly as freighted on the day that it happens as is the conversation behind it. Because Trump, while he offends many's aesthetic sense, represents something Biden is clearly contrary to, which is a great belief in the people of the United States running their own lives. I think, you know, they just go run your own lives. And the Biden party believes in running your lives for you. I really think it comes down to that, Dr. Arn. Well, it's, you know, it, there's an argument behind it. And the argument is pretty simple. Uh, human societies evolve. And we come to understand the process of that evolution and everything else through the principles of modern science, which is something different than ancient science. It's connected to making stuff, right? So now... Everything should be decided by experts and expertise. Raising your kid, you know. Um, uh, you know, I, I became a grandfather three or four days ago. And, you know, the baby, I haven't seen the baby yet, but I know it looks like a larva. And, uh, uh, or Winston the Churchill. Friend, they yeah, all look yeah, like Churchill. It, yeah, I sent a text last night that said, at last it's, she's coming to look more like Winston Churchill. <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, my daughter and my wife, and to a lesser extent, her husband, <laughs> are going to raise that kid. Yes. And they can do it, right? But a socialist minister in 1946 said, the gentlemen in Whitehall know better how to raise children, right? Because they're experts, because they have science behind them. And, and so this idea then that we can engineer the society into some kind of unnamed perfection it's the great thing. It's, it's what's going on in the world today. And, and it will be. It will not end. That discussion does not end on January 21st. When we, when we come back from break, Larry Arm, we're going to talk about Georgia because Senator Perdue is coming up in, in seven or eight minutes here at 630 at 833. But I, I, I want you to prepare for that because I think in Georgia, it's on the ballot. I really do. And that's why President Trump's going to Georgia tomorrow to campaign for David Perdue and Kelly Leffler. Don't go anywhere, America. Come right back with Larry Arn on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Welcome back, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue is brought to you courtesy of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu, including the Barney Charter School Initiative, which Dr. Arn and I talked about uh, on 
Wednesday night from the Kirby Center in Washington, D.C. And all the video online courses and millions of people in Imprimus are there as well. Dr. Arn, after this uh, short segment, David Perdue, senator from Georgia, joins me to talk about his race to win re-election. He was elected six years ago, and Kelly Leffler beat Raphael Warnick, and David Perdue's running against John Ossoff. And President Trump is going down to Georgia tomorrow uh, to campaign for both of them against some uh, radical claims, by, including a gentleman by the name of Lynn Wood, who apparently supported Stacey Abrams two years ago, and I'm not quite sure about his motives. It's very sketchy what's going on down there. But what is on the ballot in Georgia, in your view, as not a partisan, but as a scholar? Uh, Because if one or both of the Republicans win, Mitch McConnell runs the United States Senate for the next two years. But if both of the Democrats win, Chuck Schumer does. What what is the consequence in your view? Well, it's you know, I I don't purport to tell anybody how to vote in Georgia. But I I I say this. We Americans are have the dangerous privilege of living in a time when the whole direction of the country and the whole view of human nature nature it adopts is up for grabs. And so, you know, this is not it, it doesn't come down to this one election, but it, it, it comes down to a choice, you know, and I'll tell you, there's I've, I've thought about this all my life. There's serious reason to think that the old way cannot be sustained, and we should just go forward to the new. Uh, and, you know, in a way, it looks kind of hopeless to think that people, that go, the purpose of government is to protect people living their individual lives, right? Because the pandemic, right, everything you do is seen to affect everybody else, and therefore, in principle, everything you do can be regulated. And the, the two big questions are, can that be stopped? But also, should that be stopped? And, you know, there's huge. And so the American people have to make up their mind. And I'm in the teaching business. So I, what I do for a living is encourage people to think about that. And in this election, I, it's not the point. That, go go ahead. Add, it, since I put the point that way, uh, I should do it for balance. Um, the alternative is this view. And it's in James Madison in the Federalist Papers. Men are not angels, and angels do not govern men, and therefore giving anyone limitless, unaccountable power will always result in despotism. Always. And that, and, always. And if, you, if, if you believe that, then you believe in limited government, and then you, could, you should become a student of how it can best be limited, but also empowered, because you have to have government. So... And- there, that's what I think is it. That's, and every bureaucrat up in the world. We, we got nothing against the people who are in bureaucracies, but every bureaucrat has before them a temptation to be a tyrant. And I dealt with it for 35 years. We began talking about Bruce Hershenson. We should close. Bruce was a freedom guy. I mean, he was always oh. talking about freedom. And that and he ran against Barbara Boxer in 1992 and lost, not, on, not because of his ideas, but because of treachery, political treachery, because they couldn't beat him on the idea. Larry Arn. It's the idea, yeah. though, that has to win uh, in Georgia and elsewhere. It has, it's the idea that has to succeed or what you just said, which is painfully pessimistic. Maybe we ought to just give up on it. We'll come to pass. Yeah. And, I, and you know, it, uh, it, 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 
my opinion is, you know, I mean, I've been driven by this for my adult life. And I, you know, I, I, I had a spell in undergraduate school where I was buying all the progressivism. I first encountered it, right? And, and the way I, the reason I discarded it was that I was forced to read Plato's Republic. And it's just very good for a person to do that because if you read it seriously, and I didn't want to, I tried not to, then all of a sudden you start to see that all these questions are old and fundamental and the great human activity is to try to figure them out. And we will never reach a final solution to them. And that means we shouldn't empower a scientific class to run the whole place. Because they can no more know the answer than Dr. Arn and I can. But if you want to be prepared to answer the question as best you can, go to hillsdale.edu, sign up for Imprimus, start watching the courses, start being prepared, because as Dr. Arn likes to say, fundamental things are indeed afoot. Uh, one of those fundamental things that are afoot is in Georgia right now. When I come back after break, we'll be joined by Senator David Perdue. Do not miss that, because that election matters, America.